If you're a regular listener to Smashing the Ceiling or you've heard about the Skylark Collective, you'll know by now that I'm all about raising up other women. And since you last heard from me, as well as a lot of new podcasts, I've also been enjoying Femme Foundry, a one-of-a-kind global community for womankind to discover, learn, connect and thrive. One of the key components that sets Femme Foundry apart is their focus on the multifaceted aspects of a woman's life. From her career to her wellness, from her spirituality to her mental health. This, along with their founding team and Femme Foundry's global partners, mean they are uniquely positioned as a media powerhouse for women's empowerment on a large scale. With a new improved 2.0 version of the app just launched, Femme Foundry has huge global ambitions with a mission to become the bumble of humanised female networking, learning and support. So download Femme Foundry today and have a look. I would love to know your thoughts. Hello there. Welcome to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that showcases the lives of women who've achieved amazing things in their careers, some who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. I'm your host, Naomi Mella founder of the Skylark Collective and the International Women's Podcast Awards. And each week I'll be sitting down with one woman to hear about the ceilings they've smashed through in their lives. The glass ceiling isn't all about corporate boardrooms, international skyscrapers and towering stilettos. Although don't get me wrong, I love a good high heel. There are women breaking down barriers everywhere, shattering stereotypes and forging their own unique and wonderful career paths. We're here to share their stories with you to let you know how they got where they are and how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. We're an independent podcast, so if you'd like to support us, please follow, rate and review wherever you listen. Everyone asks you to do this, I know, but it really does make a difference and we'd love it if you could. It is not the physical pain I find hard to deal with. It is everything that comes with it. The feeling that I am not good enough. The pain I've seen my family and friends go through every time the word surgery is mentioned. A feeling that I constantly need to justify my pain because it is not visible. The stress I feel when I am unable to be present in the office because the pain is just too excruciating. The fear of the unknown in that maybe one day I will be unable to have a family because I am yet to discover the impact on my fertility. These are the words of my guest this week, endometriosis advocate, golf influencer and brilliant lawyer Sinead McGrath. As you might imagine, the subjects we covered in this conversation are many and varied. Sinead sits on the executive committee of the Junior Lawyers Division at the Law Society. And after saying no for many years, she started playing golf a couple of years ago. There she discovered a community of women that are passionate about the sport and both keen to change the image of golf as an old white man's game and to tap into the opportunities that golf provides for women. She's amassed a large Instagram following in the golf world and documents her golf escapades there with humour, candour and some excellent photography. Sinead has also written openly in the Law Gazette about her experiences and struggles with endometriosis and is now an active supporter of increased awareness, conversation and help for women and girls in the same position as her. Endometriosis affects 1.5 million women in the UK, about the same number that suffer from diabetes, but on average it takes eight years to get a diagnosis. 
Sinead had her first surgery for endometriosis when she was just 13 years old, and it has impacted every part of her life and career so far. She picks up her story on this. Yeah, I started with it at a really young age, so it has impacted a lot of my life. So endometriosis affects the lining of your womb and effectively it gets thickened and it causes chronic pain and um, it can be horrific in terms of your periods and you know causing other symptoms like fatigue um, which I really suffered with when I was younger so when I was sort of 11 12 and had gone into high school and I I came on my periods um, my periods were incredibly heavy and that's how this whole thing sort of escalated and they discovered that I at first had ovarian cysts um, because endometriosis isn't often visible on all scans occasionally it's visible on an MRI Um, but the only way to diagnose that formally is through keyhole so I had an ovarian cyst and that just wasn't going down it was increasing in size so by the age of 13 I had my first keyhole laparoscopy um, to drain the cyst and then when they went in they discovered endometriosis too and then sort of A couple of months later, I think it was probably about less than six months later, I went back for a review, another scan, checked the cyst hadn't come back and the cyst had come back double the size. So that's when they went in and did a full cystectomy when I was just turned 14. Um, And a cystectomy is the equivalent of like a C-section cut. So that was quite major surgery at the age of 14. And then I had a couple more procedures when I was 17, 18 and there was still endometriosis, but they, they were saying, you know, it's too scattered. We can't get rid of it. And then when I was 23, 24, um, I was in work one day and I remember saying to a colleague, I feel like I've been punched in the side. Um, And it was very weird, sort of dull pain that I had. And she was like, oh, that's really strange. And, you know, over the weekend, I didn't want to eat. I wasn't hungry. And then next thing I was like rushed into hospital the following week. They thought it was a suspected appendicitis. Actually turned out to be another cyst and it was a hemorrhage cyst. And then I thought, you know, there was definitely endometriosis there as well. Years ago, I'm going to get another referral so I went back for another referral every November for three years I had a surgery um, I had laparoscopies and they found pretty significant endometriosis um, during the three of them and then during the third and final one they also removed my appendix <laughs> um, so yeah go in you take it out why not um, I get one so, free. <laughs> yeah, uh, two procedures for the price of one there yeah it's been sort of a bit of a roller coaster a couple of years it's it's now sort of 18 months since my last surgery and I'm still sort of experiencing chronic pain and unfortunately now it's just one of those things I am more than likely going to be stuck with chronic pain for the rest of my life. Discussion about endometriosis and women's fertility has been on the increase and just this week BBC's Woman's Hour chatted to Natalie Sutherland of law firm Burgess Mee, thought to be the UK's first fertility officer responsible for dispelling the myth that discussing women's reproductive health is tantamount to career suicide. Since we recorded this interview, Sinead herself has also gone on to speak about her journey through fertility treatment. But diagnosis of endometriosis remains frustrating for many, with frequent reports of women's pain being ignored and their symptoms belittled. I asked Sinead how common it was in girls as young as she was when it started. With the sort of the age that people have endometriosis, I think we are seeing it sort of younger and younger. But, you know, on average, it takes seven years to be diagnosed I think it might have increased to eight now um so it's seven to eight years of diagnosis that's so shocking isn't it I know yeah to say that 100 it's 176 million women approximately worldwide 10 percent of um, female population have endometriosis and I think people do have it 
sort of from a younger age, unfortunately. But I think because it's not discussed in schools, you know, you're just told it's a painful period. So I think actually, you know, it could be there for people that are that younger age, but we just wouldn't know because they're told it's a painful period. You know, that's what doctors are putting it down to. They say it's a painful period and sort of hesitant to refer people onwards. And I think actually people tend to find out about it a little bit later in life. So I think, yeah, it's just varied. I think we do need to talk about it more in schools would be my thing, you know. And I think I had a really hard time with it actually when I was at school because I was put on the pill, um, but I went to a Catholic school where they, you know, you do religious studies and they teach you shouldn't be taking contraception and all this. And I was really young to be on the pill. God, there's so much conflict around that, isn't there? And shame. and There's so much, yeah, exactly. And, you know, being such a young age, so... Yeah. And then with the procedures, yeah, it depends when they go in what they find, because, you know, formal diagnosis of endometriosis is through a laparoscopy. My second procedure, just before that, I'd had an MRI. And on that MRI, they actually found endometriosis, which is quite unusual. You'd find it if it's quite deep, but it really does just depend, because if you don't have it on an MRI and you go in for a laparoscopy and they don't find it, they're not then going to do anything. Um, so it is quite difficult because it is that unknown. And I think that is one of the fears people, you know, it's it's still surgery. It's it's, my, it's minor um, to most of an extent, but, you know, it's still a surgical procedure. It's still scary to go through. In her book, Invisible Women, Caroline Criado Perez explores the gender bias of medicine, with research indicating that despite suffering chronic pain conditions to a greater extent than men, women are routinely prescribed less and less effective pain relief, and more antidepressants with more mental health referrals. Women really have to advocate for themselves, fight to be taken seriously, and endure the language of shame and failure that is so often associated with reproductive health. Sinead is a lawyer, so she's pretty good at advocacy, but I asked her how she navigated her care and how she learned when to push and when to accept. Yeah, I so I mean, having it at such a young age, I think it's probably a lot on my parents. They were obviously coming to my GP appointments with me, you know, a lot of it was on them, I think, when I was younger. But actually also, so I, I have an older brother, but he's 18 years older than me. So I kind of grew up an only child. And um, I was always a confident kid. I did drama, you know, I always had to go out and make my own friends and stand up for myself and speak to people and just throw myself out there. So I think, because I'm probably a little opinionated, quite opinionated a little. I'm quite opinionated and I'm quite strong-minded. There is nothing wrong with that. I will put my feet, I'll stamp my feet. If I'm not happy with something, I'll stamp my feet until I'm happy um, with it. Because, you know, it's my health, it's my body. I know my body. I don't like when people think they know my body and my pain better than me. It's, 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 I'm going through it. I live through it every day. I know. And I'm pretty good now at recognising, you know, the things that, flare up my pain the things that do cause me problems and I actually it was funny I had a pain consultation the other week and the pain consultant was even quite surprised at how well I know my own body and he was like you're very self-aware and he was like actually he was like I don't think I've met a woman your age that has come in and is so sort of open about what she's going through and will say you know I'll let myself be sad if I need to be sad about it so you know if you're not happy with the treatment you get and you definitely have to speak up because ultimately if you don't you're not going to get the answers that you need yeah I think that's such valuable wise advice and and you know you are you 
you you are someone who's clearly very articulate, very eloquent. You know, you're not prepared to stand for something that you don't think is being sufficiently that you know done sufficiently well, Sinead, which is super admirable. But I think there's a lot of women out there that could um that often are, are not confident enough to do that. And I find that such a deep sadness, you know, that there are people putting people out there putting up with crap because they haven't got the 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 knowledge or the confidence either to 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 seek help or to do it themselves I think that's where my advice to anyone would be find a safe space you can talk about it because I found my new surgeon through an endometriosis Facebook group so it was the recommendation of those women and feeling very lost at that moment in time that I managed to then get that help I needed so there's definitely some safe spaces out there for people If any of this resonates with you, have a look at our show notes. We've put some resources in there that might just help you find a community for support or the answers to your questions. So obviously, you know, that was a huge impact on your teenage years, as you said. Um, how how did you kind of navigate your education? Because, you know, you've gone on to be a very successful lawyer. and We will come on to your career in a minute, but your, your kind of working career, as it were. But how did you navigate missing school, dealing with the chronic pain, kind of reassessing your dreams and aspirations, I guess, when you're going through periodic surgeries, struggling as you were, Sinead, how did you kind of manage all that at such a young age? Yeah, so that was really difficult. I had a really hard time at school growing up because I was, you know, missing at least a week to two weeks off school every month for the best part of five years. Wow. Um, Yeah, and definitely, you know, ended up with things when I look back feeling a little bit depressed and stuff um just because like I was going through so much with the pain and actually you realize you know it's quite a traumatic thing to go through all that surgery so it was difficult and you know I was always very my parents would probably always say I was very bright as a child I was very good at a lot of things I did like maths and stuff I used to be great at it and then you know, ultimately, I was also quite creative and did a lot of performing arts. And I was still in top sets for things, but I probably maybe didn't perform as well as I would have if I had consistently been at school in things like science and maths. Um, I came up with three three A stars and seven Bs at GCSE, and I was really happy with that. You know, God, yeah, as you should be. Yeah. I mean, you were attending school like fifty percent yeah. of the time. You should be so proud. My God, yeah. So I was really, really proud of that. You know. My parents never put pressure on me either. My parents were always like very supportive in terms of, you know, you have exams, you go in, you do your best you can. You know, they really were very supportive. And I think that definitely paid off when it came to A-level, I think, because obviously I'd missed all that time off school as well. You know, I'd sort of missed getting into certain subjects and really being able to develop those. So I just did the things I enjoyed at A-levels. And I think that was the thing that helped me the most sort of at school. Um doing things that I enjoyed and that I knew I was sort of naturally quite good at. I love this ethos. It's such a cliche to say that if you do something you enjoy, then you'll never work a day in your life. But there's an element of truth in that for those people who are lucky enough to have a job that they love. It often strikes me that so much pressure is placed on young people with the questions, so what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what do you want to do with your life? Who the hell really knows? Aren't we all just taking each day at a time and seeing where life takes us? I think I always knew that I wanted to get into law, but it felt at that moment in time, 
with everything that had gone on, it felt like a big ask, given that I had had all the surgery, missed all this time off school, you know. So I thought I will go to uni to do geography. Um, I'm actually quite good at it. And then there was always sort of the I wanted to take it back and do a master's as well in the energy sector or something sort of tied back to my geography degree. So that's ultimately what I did. So I did a three year geography degree. I did one year of a graduate diploma in law, which is a conversion course. And then I went into full-time work and did my practical course two nights a week. So I did a part-time two-year course whilst working. Um, And then I did my master's whilst working. So actually, this is only my second year, not in education. (laughs) Kudos to Sinead here. Four years of study around your day job takes guts and hard work. Having supported and lived with a partner working full-time and in part-time education, I know how hard this is, and I wasn't the one actually doing the work. So what led her to want to be a lawyer? My dad had a business when I was growing up. He had his own business, and I watched my dad with his business and going through things, you know, on the employment law side of it and stuff, and always had a bit of an interest in that. So I think that's where I sort of got that that desire to do that from and then also do you know those tests they make you sit at school where it's like you're going to do this for a job (laughs) so I got teacher nursery nurse like anything to do with teaching lecturer then on the flip side of it it was like barrister lawyer solicitor paralegal so (laughs) I think in my head I was always like I want to give this a shot you know and I've I I want to try it so you know sort of that's where that came from and ultimately sort of worked my way up in the profession really from sort of starting in a personal injury firm you know those firms that were like have you been in an accident do you want compensation that was one of the firms that I started my career at to get my foot in the door. But there's a lesson in here isn't there maybe working for a personal injury law firm wasn't Sinead's dream but it was a step on the ladder sometimes we have to take jobs in our lives that aren't our dream And if that's you right now, don't despair. We've been there too. It might feel like a step in the wrong direction, but often, as Sinead explains, you'll pick up skills and insights that you weren't expecting. Yeah, I just desperately needed the job, you know. I had started my practical course. Um, I had just done four years at uni. I was entering my fifth. I was like, you know, I need a job. I need to live. Um, This was sort of before master's loans as well, you know, so and yourself in a lot of debt so I was like um I need a job and someone had said and you know even I went I remember going in for that interview and I remember them being like you are too qualified to take this initial role which was just initially sort of a, a case handler answering calls setting up files but it's actually that experience that you value the most you know you see a lot of paralegal jobs I see it now they want two years experience as a paralegal um or six months experience as a paralegal however you're not always going to get that at the exact firm you want to get it at straight away and actually these firms you know you think people think oh I would never want to associate with myself with somewhere like that however you get a lot of responsibility and you progress really quickly because I was there for I think it was four or five months and then I moved into a paralegal role so I then I understood the front end of the cases because I had been that person setting them up then I moved to paralegal. So I moved to being that person that the case was passed to from being set up. So, you know, you understand a lot of the basics that actually are really, really important for having a foundation career in law, I feel, you know, you need to think, you know, what value are you getting out of these roles? And how's it going to help you in the future? Don't 
look at the name of where it is you know where it sits in the world rankings you know think about the experience you're getting and I think often you know we now see like people are qualifying as solicitors at the age of 29 and a half so people are going out there and getting that paralegal experience I think it's really important but you know definitely it's not one to look down on if you think you know that's not where you aspire to be full-time you you could be surprised by what you experience. Definitely. And I think that's a really good way of looking at things. God, you're really wise, Sinead. I love listening to you, actually. I just think people really are often quite fixated about what job title they have. And I think it's a really, when we're talking about careers and, you know, we talk about women with kind of unusual and interesting careers on this podcast. I think it's so easy to be attracted by a job title, but actually the way you get there and the path you take and the things you learn along the way are just as important. You know, I feel like the word journey is just grossly overused in society these days. But it is, it's a cliche to say it, but like it is, you know, like you don't go from point A to point B on a straight path. You go along like a pretty fucking wiggly route sometimes. Exactly. And and actually things don't work out the way you're expecting. And that can be for a whole multitude of reasons. And sometimes they do work out the way that you want them to, but not necessarily in the way that you thought they would. And I just, I feel like, the value in what you were just saying there is 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 giving a different perspective on things, which I think is is really valuable. So so thank you. Um, so bit of a change attack. Let's talk about golf. Uh, <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, Anna Sinead also has a um, fabulous Instagram account and is becoming rapidly a female golfing influencer. I do not think that is a big stretch, actually. Um, your your Insta about your journey to use that awful word again learning golf um it's brilliant it's honest it's candid it's funny it's really well done um interested to hear you took an a-level in photography can see that um tell us a little bit about why did you want to learn golf um and how did you get into it so dad tried to get me into it had a couple of lessons hated it was like no thank you um and then stop there and that was when yeah that was when I was like 14 well I just couldn't really get into it and you know at the age of 14 I was like into drama dance horse riding there was a lot I did um that wasn't golf and I just enjoyed that more but I do remember I was like you know mum dad I'll start playing golf if you buy me pink golf everything <laughs> um, and they bought I remember they bought me a pair of foot joys which are a, a golf shoe brand and they had like pink stripes on them and I still have those shoes to this day and these shoes were like unworn until 2019 (laughs) they were still in the box but I yeah I guess really you know looking back I wish I had started sooner would I really have had time with like the seven years I was at university and working full-time I don't know and in 2019 I actually um I dated someone that worked in the profession he wanted to get me into it I live quite close to a big driving range in um Manchester and you know he he liked that because he thought date night at the driving range and I was like no no date night at the driving range so romantic oh my god I um tried hitting yeah a couple balls with him and I just didn't enjoy that I just thought I just randomly thought it was like I think it was a Sunday I remember I said to my dad I was like it's a nice day do you want to go to the driving range see if I'm actually any good at it it kind of went from there and then you know sort of the reason the Instagram came about was that was sort of September 2019 and then I had to stop because I had my surgery (laughs) so I started at the wrong time um, stopped to recover from my surgery and picked it back up again January 2020 and I didn't know anybody that played golf I started 
the Instagram page just to kind of meet people. There was never any intention behind where I wanted it to go, where I expect it to go. Um, sometimes I think I'm probably still in that head because it's headspace with it because in my head it's smaller to me than, I, than it actually is. Um, but it's been a great way to meet people that play and, you know, that share a passion that I have. And ultimately a lot of them are becoming really good friends. Golf undoubtedly enjoys the perception of being a sport for old white men. And other women have intermittently pointed out to me that the golf course is a location where business is done outside of the office, making it a place of soft power from which those who do not play, particularly women, are often excluded. Tiffany Mac Fitzgerald, the founder of Black Girls Golf, has written that she noticed how many opportunities were available to her male colleagues who played golf and of building better professional relationships and connecting with people in positions of power and influence when she took up the game. Golf is a great form of exercise, but it hasn't broken through to appeal to young women in the way that, say, tennis has. Why not? Yeah, I, I do think there's a lot of stigma attached to it, like you say. Um, there's often a perception, you know, that people are at, at golf clubs are older men, and, you know, there's things that are said potentially about women playing, women are slow, you know, all of this. And the PGA Championship's on and that's on that's televised on Sky. And that's just men playing golf. You know, that's that's the top male players out there playing on the PGA Tour. Where's the women's golf on TV? You know, we don't get the same level of coverage on Sky Sports with women's golf. We're starting to see a little bit more. And, you know, um, Justin Rose and Kate Rose, his wife, have put together the Rose Ladies series and that's to give pros and female pros in the UK the opportunity to play because last year when golf returned during the pandemic um, professional golf returned women's professional golf didn't return at the same rate you know we've got some amazing female players that are at the top of their game and they're just not getting that opportunity that men are necessarily getting I think you know there are more young women coming through golf I think the pandemic has been great for women's golf and there's some more initiatives sort of coming out as well so I know I joined Ladies Love Golf which is um, a group in a community that they're trying to build of women where you can go for group lessons get involved meet women that play and I think I went to one of their sort of taster days that they put on and um, I think they said they had over 100 women at the one facility that I went to which was brilliant they were all ages you know Um, so I think we are seeing a little bit of a rise I think Things like dress code don't help as well. This often gets brought up, you know, um, it's quite outdated, um, but we're starting to see people wearing hoodies on the course, you know, sort of moving towards that more active wear sort of style rather than, you know, as formal as it used to be. Skirt needs to be this length, your trousers need to be this colour, your socks need to be white or black and above your ankle, you know. I think we're starting to see that and brands are coming out with some really interesting and sort of cool designs that probably are younger women are probably more attracted to you know and I've got sort of my friend Lauren has her Instagram page and she just has like the most effortless and cool style and like people like her you know younger girls if it is something you're into the fashion side of golf like you can look up to her and you know sort of see how what she's doing what she's wearing on the course. There's two things I was going to say off the back of that actually one of which was just when you said there was over 100 women there of, of varying ages one of the things I really treasure is female friends of varying ages particularly older women and I actually think it's very easy to say we should encourage more young women into golf, which we definitely should, but actually encouraging friendship and play between 
women of different generations I think is also really valuable as well have you have you found that yeah yeah I think age is just a number I'm not there just to play with people that are like my age I play with you know not had much chance to play with many women yet because obviously sort of everyone that I have met through my Instagram is scattered across the country um, but there are a group of women around Manchester that play at Disley and have been so welcoming to me Um, you know sometimes we try to get out most Friday evenings not at the moment with the weather um, but we would try to get out whether it's for nine or on a weekend for a round of 18 you know go to different golf courses and stuff and they've been really welcoming and it's only sort of the last month and a half maybe I've really been playing with them but on Instagram there's a group of us that during the lockdown were every Friday doing a golf quiz you know it was all the girls off Instagram you could invite in new people that had started golf you could invite anyone of any age so we have um, a little girl called Mia that comes on she's nine um, so, yeah and she's an amazing golfer she's awesome. fantastic she's absolutely and her confidence is just amazing obviously you should add her parents like no she's there and her parents sit with her um but like she's so we go right from like welcoming in you know people that are younger through to anyone that wants to join you know some of the young girls that are on there are just their confidence just amazes me you know on what they're doing and they they have aspirations to play and go to college in the US where they can get scholarships this kind of thing and then there's equally sort of the girls that are my age you know and they're all becoming really close friends you know people I talk to about my health my endo you know they're the people that celebrated with me for my job when I got that so um yeah it's a great group it's great to have that you know with those girls and we've we've never met and we're hopefully all going to meet soon and have a, a day playing golf together which would be amazing yeah so cool well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this chat. So yeah, Sinead, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. That was amazing. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. I love that. So Sorry, my life is like so random as you can tell. That's all for this week. You'll find all the links you need to everything we've discussed in this episode in the show notes that will be sitting right there in front of you on whatever podcast app you use. So do just have a look in there if you want more info or have a sneaky peek at the socials. If you've enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful, then please do tell a friend. We're always keen for new listeners. If you can find it in your heart to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or give us a shout out on your socials, then I would love you very much as it helps others to find us. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Skylark Collective and our website is www.skylarkcollective.co.uk. See you next time.